Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here, we are a family that seeks to love others the way Jesus loves us and raise people up in His love. We are grateful to have you listening. Regardless of who you are, you are always welcome here. For more information, check out our website at nbkumc.com. Welcome to the first Sunday of Advent. Unto us a child is born. Um, we have <laughs> yes. We are almost at the end of the year. This is the first of four weeks of Advent. Uh, four to five weeks of Advent that we are going through, and we are. At the end of the year, indeed, what started May 15th, the first Sunday online, has led us all the way to December, which is the day after tomorrow. Um, and that's disgusting when I say it like that, but I hope you guys are doing well. Um, and I hope you guys are staying safe. Please stay safe. Not a public service announcement, but... Um, you know, COVID is going up, so if you can stay home as much as you can, I hope your Thanksgivings were safe. And if not fully safe, I hope that they were, um, I hope that they were restful and that your family got time together. And now, do what you can to quarantine. <laughs> if you guys have been gathered in groups of like more than, you know, seven to ten, do your best to quarantine. Um, and, you know, I get a lot of questions these days asking me like, Jane, how much longer is this going to go? Jane, what's going to happen if our community gets hit with COVID? Uh, I just want to remind you guys that it's going to be okay. We're going to make it through together. I don't, I can't guarantee that it's always going to be okay circumstantially, but, I can't say that we will have each other, even if it's virtual, even if you might not feel like you're surrounded by people. I just want to remind you that you have a community that loves you the way the Lord loves you, and you have a God that is not done with you. So just keep that in mind as you trudge forward. Let's In New York, there is a um, hashtag for it. It's New York Tough. Not saying that, not trying to give you guys tough love, but let's weather this storm together. Uh, hope you guys are staying safe. We are done with Acts, and we are entering into our first sermon series of Advent. Uh, we are going through the book of Micah for Advent. Uh, the Lord has put this book on my heart for a long time to preach, uh, but I have skipped over it every single time. And lo and behold, I really felt the call... I really felt the burden to preach uh, from this, and I'm confident that this is what God wants us to focus on this Advent. And Micah has this focus of hope. So this sermon series is called Hope. Hope in Jesus. The word Advent, um, not the string is flowing around. The word Advent is originally a word, I believe it's Latin, and it has this root of coming, the coming of Jesus. And 
I don't know if you guys knew that, but Advent is about the coming of Christ, and we 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 await the birth of Jesus, and we take this time to celebrate that together. Uh, but one of the key key themes, not the kings, key themes of Advent is hope. I want to ask you, what are you hoping right now? What do you hope in? What do you hope for? Because those are two different things. What do you hope in? And what do you hope for? Today, our title is In the Face of Injustice. That's the title. Or The Face of Injustice. The Face of Injustice. That's the title. And the main idea is... In the face of injustice, we have hope in the person of Jesus Christ. In the face of injustice, in the face of trial, the face of suffering, whatever it may be, we have hope in the person of God. Um, Obviously, I don't know what verse comes to mind when you think of Micah. Love, justice, do mercy, walk humbly with your God, right? Um, that's 6, 8, and we will get to that eventually. But we're going to be reading, we're actually skipping the first three chapters of Micah. I'm going to synopsize it here, but we're skipping the first three chapters into chapter 4. Would you join me um, and flip to Micah chapter 4? Micah is before Jonah. No, after Jonah, before Nahum. Micah chapter 4 verse 1. I am reading from the ESV. This is prophetic language. If you guys want to read from the NIV or the NRSV, that's totally acceptable. Just know that there will be discrepancies between what I read and what you read on in your Bible. Micah chapter 4 verse 1. We hold this with holy reverence because it is God's word. This is the word of the Lord. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow into it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of the hosts has spoken, for all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those who I have afflicted, and the lame I will make the remnant. And those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in the Mount of Zion 
from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hail of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writh and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let her eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheeps to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron. I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? God, I thank you for this blessed Sunday that you've given us. I thank you, Lord, that you love your people so much. You bring us to this point where we can fall at your feet. We can worship you. We can listen to your word. Had this come for us at a different time, we would not have been able to do this. But Lord, praise be to God that you allow us the tools, the resources to be able to do this together. Lord, I just pray as we as we go over the advent, the coming of Christ, and the circumstances around that, that prophecy, that foretelling. Lord, I just pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand what you are doing right now. Lord, I pray that you would speak to every single person as they need. Father God, only you know the hearts of your people. And I pray that you would speak mightily, that you would move in hearts to be able to see you for who you are. Lord, I pray just for me, for myself, God, I pray, God, that I would be hidden behind the majesty of your cross, that it would not be my words or my wisdom, but God, that it would be yours and yours alone. Father, I am nothing without you. So, Father, I just pray that you would preach into the hearts of your people as you use me as a mouthpiece. May I be nothing more. And, God, may you be magnified in this time. Oh, Lord, nobody else, may no one else worship themselves right now. May even I not worship how I may be perceived. But, God, may you be worshipped, may you be magnified, and may you be glorified. May you be at the forefront of our thoughts. God, in your infinite sovereignty, would you push out every and all distractions right now that keep us from seeing the reality of who you are. Help us to be fixed on you. We love you. We give you glory and honor and praise. 
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're speaking on Micah. I'm going to repeat that main idea one more time. In the face of injustice, in the face of injustice, we have hope in the person of God. Now, I skipped over Micah chapter 1 through 3, but I want to talk a little bit about the book of Micah, and I want to talk a little bit about Micah 1, 2, 3, before talking a bit about 4. So what is the context of Micah? We always hear about love, justice, do mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And it's taken a lot out of context to speak into the state of America. But actually, Micah has its own political historical context. And we want to. I want to talk a little bit about that. So Micah is... Um, a minor prophet. He's a southern kingdom prophet. So Israel was divided, kind of like Korea. And there is no map up here. Uh, no. There's no way to show this. Yeah, there's no way to show this. But if you can imagine, right? Like, the first top of the half is Israel. And the second bottom of the half is Judah. Judah is the kingdom that David was king for. David and Solomon were Judean kings. Micah is a Judean minor prophet. He is around the time of Hezekiah. (coughs) Or he is from right before Hezekiah to the beginning of Hezekiah. And Isaiah picks up after in the midst of all of that. Um, so Isaiah and Micah, it happens around similar times. Um, if that puts things into perspective a little bit for you. I talked about King Hezekiah before, and I believe I talked about it for Isaiah. So, um, yeah, they're in the same time period. So, uh, sorry, just correcting the stray strand in my mouth. Um, yeah, so Micah is a southern kingdom minor prophet, right? He's during the time of Hezekiah and right after Uzziah. So that's about... Oh, ooh, I'm sorry if I butcher this. I will correct myself later on the website if this is wrong, but I believe that is 8th century BC. Um, or, no, it must be... No, I think it is. Okay, um, 8th century... The end of 8th century, right before it goes into the 7th, I believe. Please do not um, quote me on that. Uh, But yeah, so it's an 8th century prophet. Not that that matters much to us right now. Um, But it is significant because of the core issues that Israel is dealing with. So I've skipped over Micah chapter 1, 2, 3. I highly recommend you guys take time this week to, you know read it on your own, but Micah chapter 1, 2, 3 is pretty bleak, and I'm just going to overview it. Micah is pissed, and he's crying out to the people of Israel to chill, because God is coming with a vengeance. There will be judgment. Judgment will fall upon Israel if they continue in their rampant sin. Um, Micah laments at how Samaria and the northern kingdom, Israel, which was far more idolatrous and uh, corrupt than the southern kingdom was initially. Um, this this con- this kingdom fell first too in the time of exile. Sorry, oh my God, I broke into the mic. I apologize. Uh, but 
Yes, so Southern Kingdom fell first. And the first chapter, Micah laments at how Samaria and the Southern Kingdom has seeped into Micah. I mean, uh, Jerusalem and Judea. So that's what's going on right now. And some of the things that's going on that are major themes that Israel is doing is injustice, idol worship, and the leader's exploitations of the weak. So injustice, idol worship, and the leaders, the priests and the leaders, exploitations of the weak. So at this point, there's extensive Baalism. If you guys remember Baal, um, Baal is a very, very prominent idol at this time. And at the time of like Isaiah and even... Oh, my favorite, and I don't even remember. Elijah. Baalism was very extensive in the house of Ahab in the time of Elijah. And there was a lot of unacceptable worship of God in the reign of the northern kingdom that seeped into the southern kingdom. So there was a lot of rampant idolatry, and there was a lot of injustice. And in the beginning, Micah talks a little bit about this idolatry. But what he really starts honing in on is the injustice that the leaders are doing to the weak. So there's this unacceptable worship of God. And one of the key themes of Micah is Micah is trying to, you know, fix people's eyes, fix the eyes of the people on Israel, inviting Israel to a true heart of worship of the Lord, once again, rather than all the idols. Because at the time, even when Israel followed some customs here and there, uh... It was like a polytheistic world. So at that point, I think the mentality was like the more the merrier. The more gods, the merrier. The more you're safe. So, man, me like thrashing this string around is probably definitely not good for this issue. Anyway, um, but (laughs) the, what was I saying? Oh my goodness, what was I saying? Oh yeah, so it was a polytheistic society. So even though they were worshiping God, they were still worshiping other idols such as Baller and other carved images. They had Asherah and Baal in their houses alongside following the customs of the Lord because the more the merrier. It's a polytheistic society. Why can't we worship both? And so there's, there was this rampant idolatry at the same time of Israel. And that led... That led themes of temple worship to bleed into Israel as well. And what that, one of the main things that led to is the exploitation of priests, of people. So what I mean by that is priests would take money for prophecies. They would take money to instruct people separately on top of temple stuff. And, you know, it's written in scripture exactly what priests should get, exactly what priests should eat, because... God has created a sustaining, a sustaining system for the Levites to be able to make, for the Levites to be able to eat and live based off of what they received from the temple, right? But these priests began to do side jobs with their spirituality. And that's a common theme in Baalism. It's a common theme in other idol worship. And so what they started to do is they started to take money 
in order to be able to foresee other people's futures, which has nothing to do with the priestly job. Um, and they began to take money in order to instruct people. So there are some key themes here that uh, Micah touches upon. I want to talk a little bit about the political climate of this time because I think it's really interesting. Uh, the political climate of this time is, it's during, so Israel is a small country, an underdog, and there's this big empire called Assyria, right? And Assyria right now, during this time, they're at their peak. I'm not going to read the ruler name, it's right here, but I think that's unnecessary. Uh, it's at the peak of Assyria's reign. And Israel is this small underdog with a small plot of land, fighting to not be taken over. So there's these small Judean kings against this greater king. And war refugees are moving into Judah, while Sennacherib like completely pillages everywhere, including Judah, because the way that empires worked at the time is just take all the land that you can get, right? Take all the smaller kingdoms, divide and conquer, right? And so uh, every single place was being pillaged and all these war, war-torn war refugees were pouring into Judah, helplessly poor, while um, Assyria was also ripping apart the country. While Sennacherib didn't end up getting Jerusalem, the war was so destructive economically, it took a huge, Israel took a huge blow. Like a huge, huge blow. Um, they didn't take Jerusalem, uh, but there was a huge, huge blow to the economy, the economic vitality of the country. And what started to happen was, even the rich, they didn't know how to sustain their lifestyle anymore because their country was so poor. What do rich people do when they have no more money? We've seen it a lot during COVID. What's, what do rich people do when they have no more money? Survival of the fittest, y'all. They take from the poor. And so the rich started to literally seize the land, the small plots of land that these refugees had to live. Politicians no longer stood up for justice, and even judges took bribes. That was the state of the country at the time. Even the judges took took bribes. And so Micah is, it almost, by, by chapter 3, Micah uses the words, woe. Woe is the state right now. He goes into this funeral lament for the kingdom of Israel, for the ways that they have been religiously idolatrous, the ways that they have been politically corrupt and violent, the ways that the church has begun to dissolve into chaos by allowing these foreign influences and this materialism to enter into the hearts of the leaders. So, like, Micah 1 is just judgment, judgment, judgment. Micah 2, he explains a little bit more. Like, Micah 1 focuses more on that idolatry, and then Micah 2 focuses more on this injustice, right? And then there's, and then he says, I'm going to have a remnant. And then Micah 3 is just a whole chapter dedicated to yelling at the leaders of the country. 
both the political and the religious leaders. So it says the leaders and the priests. So that's what's going on here right now. You know, the powerful are rejecting God's word. There's this rampant theft of property. Rampant idolatry. Just rampant idolatry. So there's this funeral lament that Micah Micah has about this situation. And I don't know if that sounds very familiar to you guys, but that sounds really familiar to me. You know, one thing, it's interesting because this is hundreds of years before Jesus Christ. But tell me not, is it not relevant to us today? I will say, like, human beings, man, we really don't change. We really don't change. And this is one very good example of how human beings don't change. Um, Yeah, it's just, you might have seen it many times in our country, injustice in the hands of the strong. Strong and arrogant individuals who feel that they deserve to spend more or have greater clout than everyone else. For example, one one thing that has been coming up a lot in COVID, a lot one thing that has been discussed a lot in COVID is Amazon. Amazon versus small smaller owned businesses, locally owned small businesses. During this time of COVID, Amazon, through Prime, through Amazon Prime, and that cursed two-day shipping that I've completely fallen privy to, um, has really skyrocketed. Partially because, not partially, mainly because it is dangerous to be outside right now. And if you can shop from the comfort of your home and have it delivered to you, why not, right? Um, and Amazon has really, really um, benefited from COVID. While local businesses around us, local businesses, neighboring businesses, right around our home, right outside the comforts of our home, they're suffering because the people who would normally give back to the local economies of our towns, I live in Malden, a lot of you guys live in Andover or a neighboring like Methuen, Tewksbury, right? Um, even we've got somebody from behavioral, like there are so many different, oh, and there's Holden, like we've got people from all over low-key mass, right? And we all are part of a town, part of a district. And with that, we are part of a ecosystem, an ecosystem of a chain of supply and demand, right? The local, you know, workers give their clothes to the laundromat. The local people buy their food from the grocery store, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this, in turn, gets circulated. This money gets circulated to be able to feed all the families that are behind these businesses, which often are also people within the town, right? But because we all turn to Amazon, because we all turn to these delivery services, uh, although like DoorDash is, is something that is committed to locally owned businesses, uh, it's very... Like when it comes to groceries, when it comes to even just, you know, even just, even wholesale, um, wholesale supermarkets, BJ's, Costco, places like these that 
eat away at locally owned supermarkets. And th these things, they, they add up. And all these bigger guys, they get more money during this time because everybody has less money. You would rather go wholesale if you're going to go outside anyways. And if you're... If you don't need to go outside, why not just buy from Amazon? Why do we need to go to the local shop? There's no, there's no need for that. You can just get it on Amazon. It'll come right to your door. Um, in these ways, by utilizing these services, other rather than utilizing even our local malls, even our local shops, what that does for the economy is that the economy suffers around us while the people who are at the top of the strata get richer and richer. And that's exactly what's happened during COVID. Jeff Bezos has gotten so like exponentially richer uh, than what he was pre-COVID. He's one of the only people, one of the only people in the world even institutions, colleges, universities, losing tons of money. Our government, losing trillions of dollars. Um, just so many banks suffering large amounts of losing lots of revenue. Um, but not Jeff Bezos, because Amazon is getting richer and richer and richer. Um, this is something, I don't want to say that this, I don't want to call it a monopoly, right? But there is this understanding of a monopoly. I'm sure all of you guys have taken U.S. history. Um, I don't want to get into, you know, Vanderbilt, and I don't want to get into all of that. But even in the past of our country, we've had particular families that would own entire fields, like the railroads and certain types of fuel and like certain families had all the wealth and all the money for all of it. Nobody else got to make nearly as much, not their workers, not the neighboring, not the areas that they were mining, you know, the areas that they were building. Everybody stayed poor while the rich got richer. And how does that make you feel? How does that make you feel? Often for the people, it makes us feel like we're cheated out of something. And to some extent, we kind of, we kind of are. Uh, not necessarily just by these services, but by the system. There's this an idea of injustice in the hands of the strong. These strong individuals who feel entitled and continue to receive clout and greater clout, greater influence, greater money than everyone else. Exclusive monopolies at the expense of the poor. While our individual families are suffering, we're cutting losses, some of us are closing down our shops because we can't pay rent, because you know the landlords are not forgiving. While that is happening right outside our very door, these people are getting richer out of what? Our own pockets. So these things are, they exist in our in our society today. And that's what it looks like in our society, but that's what was going on during the time of Micah. All of these refugees um, started pouring in, and then also the people in Jerusalem became war refugees because war was happening at their doorsteps. Everybody's homes were being destroyed. Resources were being depleted. You can't just go outside when it's war, right? The soldiers are being sent out. That costs money to the country. That falls back on everybody else's heads. It's a very real situation where everybody gets extremely poor. And the one thing that they have at that point is their land. 
because they can make food. Even if they don't have money, they can make food. But when the rich no longer were able to sustain themselves, they began to steal plots of land from the poor. And they exploited all of those diaspora refugees in particular, the people that were escaping war. Meanwhile, as Sennacherib and Assyria, as they're pillaging towns, right? As they're pillaging towns left and right, many Israelites are also getting held captive. They're being taken up as villages are taken down. The only reason why Israel doesn't end up falling to the empire is because the capital, Jerusalem, ends up staying okay. But that doesn't mean that the rest of the nation of Judah hasn't suffered. Many have become prisoners of war. If they're not prisoners of war, they're refugees. And if they're refugees, they're dirt poor. And at this point, the rich starts to exploit that and also exploit the widows who are left without husbands because husbands have died in the war. And so this is this is the political situation of what is going on in Judah at the time. At the same time, you've got these politicians who are taking bribes. Oh my gosh, how could they? What kind of politician would take money from rich people to dictate the laws of the land? What kind of judges would take gifts to influence their decisions? Hmm. Maybe even our own country. Um, lobbying is so big. Lobbying is acceptable. Lobbying is normalized in our country, but here it's seen to be a great injustice for politicians to take money from the rich. Nobody stands up for justice. Everybody's taking bribes. And when people fail to lead others in just and loving ways, disorder and chaos reign. So what's going on in Micah, in the time of Micah right now, there's lots of disorder. There's lots of disorder religiously because the priests have started to exploit the people who are coming into the temple. The people have become complacent. They have started to worship God alongside all of those things around the world, around their society that they that other people worship. They have started to culturally be pagan, even though they are religiously Jewish. That is also not something that is so far from us right now, right? We might not, uh, when, when we act, we might not be, when people see us during the week, they might not be able to tell that we are actually indeed Christian. So then people are treated unjustly and people fail to lead others in just and loving ways. That's some of the stuff that's going on here. You might ask, okay, so Micah 1, 2, 3, is that just Micah raining judgment, like raining this word of judgment down? No. The goal of the prophet is not just to rain down future things on, on God's people. The goal of the prophet is to persuade them of their need to transform their injustice so that God will not have to destroy the nation of Judah. The goal of the prophet is to persuade them. So Micah is not just taking a giant thong on Israel for the sake of being like, you suck! 
You're this, you're this, you're this, you suck. Hey, I'm gonna make a side note here for a second. That's, it's one thing when the oppressed are crying out in our country, right? But there's one other thing about progressive and liberal social justice movements that lose, that miss the mark in terms of actual change. Because when you, when you virtue signal other people on social media, and I have, I have been, some of you guys might be like, oh, Jane, don't you kind of do that too? And I, I have to, I have to say like, at a certain point, I think I did. And if I, if that stumbled you guys, I apologize for that. I've been working on it myself not to do that so much, um, while still caring without virtue, like still caring about these injustices without virtue signaling other people. But when you virtue signal too much, there is no space for redemption and reconciliation. Because all, if all you're saying is you suck, there's no, there's no room to recover from that. Um, and so is Micah just virtue signaling and is just bashing people? No. The goal of the prophet is to persuade their need to transform their injustice so that God will not have to destroy the nation of Judah. And that's something we can learn from Micah. While Micah is calling out injustices, his goal is not to diagnose it and call it as he sees it. His goal is to persuade the ones who are corrupt to change their actions, to transform, to have their hearts transformed by God by the presence and the existence and the realization of who God is in order to bring reconciliation and healing to the nation so that God will not have to rain judgment on the nation. The goal of Micah is not just to call them out. But the goal of Micah is so that God would not have to rain down his mighty judgment. And so that's what's going on for the first three chapters. I highly recommend you guys read it because I think it's very, very pertinent to this particular season of the world. And to be honest, I didn't fully know that it would be this relevant until the Lord put Michael on my heart. Because God put Michael on my heart with this verse. And this is a bit of a spoiler. But I think it's really important to know this. It says in Micah chapter 5 verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, who is coming, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And he shall, skipping a little ahead to verse 4, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Micah is one of the many prophets that foretell the coming of a leader from Bethlehem. A new leader that will judge in peace and justice and love and kindness. A part of God's plan of hesed, everlasting love for Israel. When you can, when you consider that that is one of the key points of Micah, to bring hope to the people of Israel, but that Micah starts off with this injustice, 
It's very interesting. Israel at this point has not looked at God in a while. And there's a challenge here that Micah gives to Israel to walk in God's ways and trust Him. This is a crisis situation where there's mass confusion and little hope as much as when things go well, right? There's there's mass confusion, there's chaos, everything is devolved into just, it's just, you know, this little spiral that has gone down and down and down. And yet, this book is a book about the coming of Jesus. This book is a book about hope in the salvation of God. Yet it starts with this injustice while disorder and chaos reigns. It's very interesting. Why? And I want you guys to chew on this while I talk a little bit more about chapter 4 now. Because I think it's very important to understand why God brings us the hope of Jesus Christ. And from what kind of situation, from what kind of circumstance, the hope of the gospel, the hope of Jesus Christ comes. Now, we've talked about Micah chapters 1, 2, 3, and we're going into Micah chapter 4. Now, Micah, so Micah, the book of Micah is actually written kind of segmentedly. It's not written as one full letter like, you know, Acts is, and it's not written like one full letter like the epistles. This is actually uh, a collection of Micah's prophecies, right? And so 1 to 3 is during one season of Israel, and then Four to five is during another, four to six is during another season of Israel. So Micah is now, it's a little skipped ahead in time. Micah is now writing to Hezekiah's reform movement. So King Hezekiah has now come on the throne. Judea was in all this idolatry and madness. And then Hezekiah is like, yo, we gotta stop. We gotta look to God. The previous king had treated Micah like a French prophet, but Hezekiah treats him like one of the main prophets. And so Micah is now writing to the reform movement, which is bringing many back to worshiping God. So there are these words of hope, and it it starts off here when you when we look at Micah chapter four verse one. It starts up, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Micah starts talking about this future hope, these words of hope. Why? During the time of this reform movement, that's when Sennacherib is really trying to get Jerusalem. Everyone is in fear right now. Babylon is pounding on the walls of Jerusalem as they speak. Everybody's afraid. What's going to come to Jerusalem? What's going to happen if our nation falls? What is going, like God is, where is God? Is God even hearing us? Everybody is scared because now it's not just pillaging. The nation is about to fall. And that's when Micah is delivering these words of hope. And it's this vision of what God is ultimately going to do in the last days when the people of the world will experience the presence of God in a totally new way. This chapter addresses people who were carried off as captives in verses 6 through 8. God has not forgotten the people who were carried off to Babylon and prisoners of war. God has not forgotten them. They're a critical part of God's plan for his people. There's a lot of really encouraging language here about how God will gather his people like a shepherd gathers his sheep. He will judge between many peoples. He will assemble the lame, gather those who have been driven away, those whom he has those whom he has afflicted. The lame he will make a remnant, those who are cast off a strong nation. 
Why do you cry aloud? Is there no king within you? You know, it's just a lot. They do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. Lots and lots of words of hope. And then at the end of chapter 4, I began to read a little bit of, of it just now. It says, Why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writh and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. This is in the middle of verse 10. For now you shall go up from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. They do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. God reinstates his plan. He says, do you not think you have a ruler or counselor anymore? God is not talking about Hezekiah here. This is the first, no, actually it's not, it might not be the first in Micah, but this is one of the key points where God alludes to this new ruler from Bethlehem. So we understand here, we understand here, this is the situation, okay? Everyone's caught all around. War is crashing in. The rich are exploiting the poor. The priests are exploiting the congregation members. The politicians are exploiting the citizens and the members of society. Everything has just gone crazy, right? Everything is upside down. People aren't just worshiping God. It's a hot mess in Israel right now. And Israel is about to fall under. And that's when God gives Micah a precious word about hope in the later days when the glory of Israel will be restored when there will be a ruler from Bethlehem who will rule the nations with peace and justice and kindness and mercy you guys might wonder Why does God share this distant future? What about their present? What about the current disaster? The war with other countries? The divided nation that's not just divided down a line from north to south, but also divided internally through status and, and economy. There's a challenge here that Micah gives, that God gives the people of Israel through Micah. And the challenge is to walk in the ways of the Lord and trust his promises. There's a crisis situation here. Mass confusion and little hope as much as when things go well. And what does God promise? Does God promise you're going to win the war? Does God promise everything is going to right itself? What does God promise here? He promises a future of the glory of Israel. And he promises a ruler from Bethlehem. He promises that he will rescue his people. And to you guys, that's going to be a challenge. How come 
God doesn't address the present. Yes, God doesn't. I mean, later we see that's not the time that Jerusalem ends up falling. Jerusalem ends up falling to Babylon, not Assyria. Sennacherib is when is or at that point Jerusalem doesn't fall to Sennacherib Jerusalem will fall later Um, it does end up falling but not that time but this particular prophecy is not about this war God doesn't promise for everything to be better again God promises a day when he himself will take care of you. God doesn't promise a just political system to Israel. Just economic status. God promises Jesus Christ. And there's something to be said about that. You guys might be like, oh, that doesn't answer the question. Maybe not at first glance, no. But when you look at our country, would you say that that's a human-sized problem? Rampant racial injustice, rampant socioeconomic disparities, rampant political corruption, Rampant lack of healthcare, access to resources, fundamental resources that every human being should have based on human rights. Healthcare is a basic right. The right to life is a basic right, and yet many people in our country don't have the proper status to have proper access to healthcare during a time of an, of a global health crisis. The president gets COVID and can get treated in three days while 250,000 people die. Who caused this problem? Man or God? I believe the answer is man. His man-made sin and a man-made problem. Y'all know how it is. We barely, we barely, we have such a hard time listening to God in our personal lives. It's a man-made problem. Can man solve it though? Is there a person? Some of us, we look to Obama as a beacon of hope. His memoir has just come out. It's called The Promised Land. I'm like, oh, The Promised Land. Land flowing with milk and honey. Martin Luther King Jr. in his last diary, I have seen the promised land. Speaks prophetically like he is Moses. Yet, can a human being fix it? What do you want? 
in a reaction to all of what is going on right now, what do you want? Your life to be better? Snap it away? But what do you really, what do we really need right now? I think it's worth considering. What do we really need right now? A genie or a redeemer? If there is ever a time for us to abandon the consumerist nature of our Christianity, now is the time. Because a genie is not going to solve this problem. Rubbing a lamp and having three wishes and having those things answered, that's not going to solve this problem. Because the problem is not our circumstances getting better, it's the hearts of the people here. God snaps his fingers, all of it goes away, we're going to get right back to it in 50 years. Because even if everything gets better, we have not changed. And God speaks to this here. He speaks to the nature of our hearts. He uses his servant to attack the problems in our society that leads to the heart. The heart problem. It's a common thread between political corruption and religious corruption and idolatry. And it's that self-service. The fact that we want to be God. We want to have it all. That we can't seem to let go of. And while that's there, this is going to happen over and over and over again. It's happened for 2,800 years. Coronavirus is unprecedented. What our nation is going through is unprecedented. It happened. A crisis of this caliber happened in the time of Michael. It wasn't a disease. That happened in Exodus. That happened in the times of the Pentateuch, where the plague hit everybody. What do we need? And here we see, in response to corruption, to injustice, in response to suffering, marginalization, oppression, systemic oppression of the weak, God promises a ruler of Bethlehem. He implores his people to remember the power of the Lord, to remember the things of God. And then he promises a ruler who comes out of Bethlehem. So what do we take away from this? I talked a lot about the exposition, and you might have felt like it was long, and it was a history lesson. I know every single one of my beginning sermons of new books or anything like that. It might sound that way. But you got to understand, we got to understand that context in, in order to understand the reality of what God is speaking and what we can take away from for us today. Now that we know all of this, how can we apply this into our life? 
One thing that we can apply is that God is calling us to walk in his ways. In response to this context that we are going through in our country right now, not so far off from from Judah on the brink of exile, you got to understand, it is a bad thing for America to look like like Jerusalem right before it goes down. It's not just the injustice we got to fear. We fear God. We got to fear God. We look exactly like them during this time. Maybe, I mean, it's not a war against people. It's a war against a virus. It's a war against each other. But the heart is no different. We got to walk in the ways of God. How do we walk in the ways of God? First, you need to accept that God has a plan for your life and for the church. There are three things that, three three ways practically, I've just written down three things that you can practically do to walk in the ways of God, okay? The first thing is that you need to accept that God has a plan for your life and for the church. In order to walk in that way, you have that's pretty self-explanatory. You have to accept first the premise that God would have a plan. Second, you need to have confidence in the power of God. What does it mean to have confidence in the power of God? You let God transform you. What does it mean to have confidence in something? I have confidence in this ground. Therefore, I step on it. I have confidence in this mic that it's going to work and that you guys are going to hear me through this mic. Therefore, I speak into it. I have confidence that this roof is going to stay over my head. Therefore, I let myself be under it. What does it mean for you to have confidence in the power of God? It might mean for you to submit to it, that the power of God is real, and that that God has a plan for your life. And you open your heart to do those two facts. You let it into a vulnerable part of your heart, the part of your heart that's latched up with all your plans, the part of your heart that's latched up with all your defense mechanisms, the part of your heart that has the control room to all of your guards, all of your vulnerabilities, all of your shame. It might mean to open the door of that control room to the reality of the power of God and the fact that God has a plan for you. What does it mean for you to have confidence in God today? And that God has a plan for you. For some of us, it might mean waiting on him right now. For some of us, it might mean going to him. For some of us, it might mean turning to him because we haven't been looking at him in a long while. For some of us, it might be receiving 
sitting with, not pushing away, but letting yourself be uncomfortable and sitting with the fact that God loves you. Sitting with the fact that you are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. For some of us, it might mean sitting with the uncomfortability that God says in his word to be renewed, to let go of certain things that you have been doing in conformity with the world. And the last thing, accepting that God has a plan for your life, confidence, and then the last thing is hope. A future trust that the person in charge will make good on everything he said. Not trusting yourself, but the person of Christ. Not trusting what you see, but the person of Christ. Not putting all of your hope in a good outcome, but in the person of Christ. That even if everything goes down, goes south really badly, Christ is for you, not against you. Another way we can apply this is carrying our lives with fairness, justice, and peace. God cares about these things. So then we should also care about these things. The American church, we focus so much on a sense of individual Christianity, we fail to talk about the fact that there is a whole level of sin called social sin. When God blames America, let me put it this way, and this is going to sound really strong. This is going to sound really strong. Okay? And I apologize. But I'm just trying to show you the scale of how social sin works. There's individual sin. And then there's social sin. When God... Now God in his mercy and his kindness and his grace, he has covered over a multitude of our sins. Jesus Christ has died on the cross for our sins. But when our nation answers for Black Lives Matter in heaven, that includes you and me. You and I are complicit because we live here. When God says, America, come over here, we have to go too. It falls on our heads just as much as it falls on the heads of those white people in the 1600s that decided to commit genocide and take over this land. The gravity of a need for a savior falls not on the sins, not just on the sins that you know, but the sins that you don't know. Not just on the sins that you have committed individually, but the sins that you have been complicit in socially. God cares about the afflicted. God cares about the homeless people. God cares about the widows and the orphans. God cares about the people who are marginalized and oppressed. Now, I'm not saying that we are 
like the top of the social strata. I'm not saying that we are the most privileged people in the world. I understand, I've lived in poverty for the first third of my life. I understand very painfully what it means to be a child of immigrants who have lived on their bootstraps and have been completely tossed aside by every single people in this country. I'm not saying that we are privileged in that way. Privilege is not something that is a switch of on and off its increments. It's like 50 shades of gray. And while some sins have been committed against us as immigrants, or many of us as immigrants, other sins we have been complicit in. We just need to care about the things that God cares about. I am not here to virtual signal. I am here coming forward as, as a leader on behalf of all of us, also repenting, unlearning. Nothing has changed. Justice has not come for Breonna Taylor. Justice has not come for Elijah McLean. Everything is still the same. The hashtag is gone. Everything is still the same. We just have to care. Not as an obligation, but as a response to God's love and as a responsibility for the citizenship of heaven that we hold. We have a responsibility. The Bible also shows here that sharing the gospel Sharing the love of Jesus goes hand in hand with fighting injustice. Those two are not supposed to be separate. The strategy of Jesus was to heal and teach in order to demonstrate that God's grace and love are not based on status or humanely created value systems. The strategy, I'm going to say that one more time. That's a, this is a quote from a commentary that I was reading just before I came out. And I, it was just so good, I have to quote it. The strategy of Jesus was to heal and teach in order to demonstrate that God's grace and love are not based on status or humanely created value systems. So that miracle of healing, teaching about how the kingdom of God is nigh, this prophecy about a ruler in Bethlehem goes hand in hand with God's response to injustice. We in America, we I have a Christmas tree in this living room. We have a Christmas tree in this living room right now. Y'all know I am all about Christmas. Christmas songs have been playing in my room for a month now. We have played Christmas songs to our friends giving dinner. But American Christianity fails to understand. When God introduces this hope, God 
is not a passive God that sits on his own thrown in the heavens and looks some of you guys might be hurt and you might feel like God is not actively involved in your life and that might be hurtful and you might be like no Jane God is passive he's not an active God he's not an intimate personal God but we see here in his book that God cares he cares he cares about you he cares about me he cares about the weak he cares about the oppressed he cares he loves his people and as we look at Michael we'll see that more clearly what Jesus was all about But as we hang up our Christmas trees, as we light up all our candles of Advent, as we talk about how the Prince of Peace is born, may we not forget of why Jesus came. Jesus came in the middle of exile. Jesus came in the middle of destruction. Jesus came in the middle of injustice. And he calls us today to trust in his plan and to care for the things that he cares about. In response to our brokenness, in response to the brokenness of our circumstances, God doesn't promise Better things he promises himself. And he asks us, can you hope in me? Can you look to me? I have seen your affliction. I have seen the tears that have fallen from your place. And I am giving you myself. What does that mean for you today? Some of you guys might not believe that. To that I say, I don't blame you.
listening we hope you were blessed by this week's message for more information check out our website at nbkumc.com